Hello, and welcome to another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with Thomas B. and learn what it was like for him getting sober in New York during the 1970s. He'll also tell us about an interesting conversation he had with Bill W.'s secretary, Nell Wing. We'll talk a little bit about the history of the Back to Basics movement and the prospects for a grapevine book with stories from atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers in AA. I hope you enjoy the program. Thank you for joining me uh, today. Uh, I look forward to talking to you. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, I've read some of what you've written um, online, and uh, you have a really interesting life. You've lived through some interesting times. <laughs> yeah, it has been interesting. <laughs> yeah, much more so mine. Our first point of view and a general point of view. So I always start these conversations by uh, asking the person to tell tell me a little bit about their story. So if you'll tell me about, you know, your background and what got you into AA and so forth. Well, uh, I'll go back to uh, I was born into a Southern family of uh, Southern Baptists and Protestants who, uh, when I was uh, hit puberty and uh, uh, my mother converted to Catholicism and I just kind of trundled off and converted with her uh, because my best friend was a Catholic uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, uh, went to Catholic high school and to a Jesuit college. And uh, the Jesuits actually uh, turned me into agnostics to question everything. And uh, early on, I began drinking at age 13, 14, and uh, my earliest experiences were, with alcohol were not only unmanageable, I came by the end of high school to describe them as unbearable. And part of the insanity of my disease is that even though I never had a uh, social process period of drinking, I kept drinking anyway because it would give me some relief some of the time. I uh, was a very high-functioning, very uh, alienated uh, during uh, high school, but very high-functioning. Uh, stayed away from my very crazy Southern family as much as I could. Went off to college and continued functioning at a very high level. But the most important time I had was my two to three hours of solitary drinking, my alone bar time, where I would sit in a corner by myself and drink copious amounts of beer until I could go home and pass out. And that was what my alcoholism was like. I early on learned that uh, uh, when I drank, my speech was slurred, and uh, I ended up throwing up on my high school prom day. You know, that doesn't get you to first base, much less anything else, you know. So I just accepted that I was going to be a bar drinker. In fact, one of my earliest memories is drinking in a, in a, a across the railroad tracks bar in Norwood, Norwood Ohio near where Xavier University was, where I went to college in Cincinnati, and watching an old man come in and carefully get that first drink into his mouth. And at 19, I identified and said, that's what I'm going to end up as. Uh, after college, uh, I uh, ended up uh, going to Vietnam, which I volunteered to go to as an ROTC officer. And a lot of the motivation was to have Charlie do what I was too chicken to do, to kill me in an honorable and glorious way, you know. And uh, 
I ended up surviving Vietnam in the uh, 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 in 67, 68. Came home to a wife whom I had married on two days before I flew to Vietnam because she was pregnant. This was pre-abortion, you know, and uh, I thought that, uh, you know, there was no way I was going to have any kind of a life. Came back, survived. We went on and ended up getting divorced after a second child. I uh, went to graduate school in theater, went to New York to, uh, uh, to become an actor and a director in the theater. I ended up getting sober instead in 1972. And uh, for that, I'm forever grateful. And a day at a time, I've been gifted with recovery ever since. And uh, the last several years, it has been enhanced immeasurably by the movement that we're creating of secular AA. I'm as excited about it today as I was when I got involved with the Young People's Movement in New York City in the 70s and became very active in AA. My first decade in the 70s doing the Young People's kept me connected into AA and I got the New York brand of you don't drink, you go to meetings, you help others. And it was all, it's always been that way for me. So that and, what, 500 words or less, maybe a 1,000 more? <laughs> that works well. And, you know, um, it's very interesting. We have a lot in common. Um, I also come from a southern family. That's also a little bit crazy. Uh, they came from a little town in uh, Florida. And uh, my father was military, and he was in Vietnam in 68. And so Vietnam was always in the background of my life when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, and I also had my first drunk when I was 13 years old. <laughs> so so uh, I guess that's a good sign that something's not going right when you, when you start drinking at 13. <laughs> so, it's a clue. Yeah. My first drunks was stealing altar wine and getting sick on it, uh, camping out. <laughs> yeah. 14. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, so you came into the program in 1972 in New York. 14. Yeah. Okay. What was what was AA like at that time in New York? You know, uh, memory, it's such a fickle thing. But my memory of AA in New York was that it was much more focused on the fellowship, much more focused on meetings and sharing at meetings and connecting with people. There wasn't the kind of uh, dogmatic emphasis that AA has become increasingly in the last um, 25 to 30 years uh, with the quote back to basics uh, movement and focusing on the precise directions as they are expounded in the first 164 pages of the big book. One of the kind of general things that I've concluded is that in in an ironic way that AA for its first 40 years roughly up until the time that Bill died in 71 and then for the next several years after was more open and inclusive than it has devolved to become in the last 35 or 40 years with this rise of back to basics, simply sober, all of the dogmatic Pacific group, Atlantic group in New York City, kind of emphasis on the working the steps exactly the way it's prescribed in the big book. Uh, so, it, you know, it, that's just a conclusion I've come to. 
at that time, uh, were, were people, did they make a big deal out of the big book? Were they quoting from it? Were they studying it and all that kind of stuff? There were sections in, in, in New York, Manhattan AA that were. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, Clarence Schneider. The, uh, the 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 evangelist, the first evangelist of uh, of what I call the back to basics movement. He had his coterie of people, and and he started the group in what Cleveland. He started the group in Cleveland, the first group to actually define itself as Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous, and they yeah. broke away from the Oxford group because most of the Cleveland people were Catholics, and back in the thirties, Catholics and Protestants were prescribed against even going to, to, to church together. So, uh, and besides, as I think Snyder, uh, uh, Mitchell Kay wrote a, wrote a biography of Clarence Snyder in which he relates the, that, that, that Snyder mentioned to Dr. Bob, you used the wrong Bible, <laughs> you know, the Catholic Bible, you know. So, uh, uh, so, so Clarence had a very big following in New York of people who would go to his AA meetings the way he did it, and then he had retreats that were, he gave all throughout the, uh, he, he settled in North Carolina initially and then down in Florida, and he was a circuit speaker, uh, one of the first and, and most popular circuit speakers, and he had his coterie of people who really believed in precisely doing it the way the Oxford group did it, the way he did it. And uh, uh, he was one of the first of the back-to-basic kind of movement. That is very interesting. I never really realized that he was the key ingredient to, to all of that back-to-basic stuff. He was one of them. Yeah. Also, it, it included Bill B., who was AA number three in act. Really? Yes. And Henrietta Seibeling, yeah. who, well... She had a strong dislike of Bill and was very judgmental of Bill uh, all throughout her life. And in the 50s, Clarence and Bill D. and Henry Edder Stifling tried to inculcate throughout AA a back-to-basics movement. But my sense is because of the charismatic cult of personality that Bill had, they weren't able to gain traction. Bill, he was loved by the fellowship. Bill was loved universally by the fellowship, all throughout. And I guess, okay, so he died like in what, 72, 71? Okay. The year before I came into AA. And Clarence lived many years after that. Didn't he live like into the 80s? No, I think 19... sometime in the late 80s. Nine, yeah, late 80s. Yeah, 80, somewhere in the mid, mid to late 80s. And I mean, he, uh, he had a lot of uh, influence on those who have now become part of the Back to Basics movement. That's really interesting. I, you know, I never really thought about that. I've read um, Ernest Kurtz's book, yeah. and uh, I read a little bit about Clarence. I need to kind of read through that again. That that makes a lot of sense because you know, um, after Bill died, nothing else is going to be written. That it, only Bill can read. Um, and then Clarence, being like uh, one of the first. People in AA, you know, of course, people are going to follow him, and people seem to love that. You know, this is the way we did it back then, the good old days, the way it should be done. There, were, there was Clarence, and then another very strong influence during the 80s was the Joe and Charlie tapes. Yes. And now I remember that. Of the Joe and Charlie tapes. You Google Joe and Charlie, and they have 
Christian-based rehabs all over the country, or had. They may have gone out of business now. Another influence was that Tom, and I'm blocking on his last name, the gentleman who uh, from New York who worked with Bill and helped Bill to write the 12 and 12, and uh, also did a lot of work with, uh, with Bill in writing some of the early pamphlets, he became convinced that only a, quote, Christian way of, uh, of doing the steps could bring about total recovery. And his, uh, he and his son, uh, I'm just blocking on, on his name, they have a all addictions recovery program in Eastridge, New York. And uh, so uh, he was also very influential in kind of cementing the original AA into this very kind of narrow Christian doctrinaire AA that it's become in the last 25 or 30 years throughout much of North America. I, I remember Joe and Charlie. I went to a AA thing in uh, Arkansas, and they were they were doing a seminar there, and I, I sat through the one on step four, yeah. and I remember they were a big deal, and I was pretty young in the program, and I didn't know... I, you know, if I if I were to see that kind of worshiping of people now, I think I would be a little taken aback. But back then, you know, everybody thought they were wonderful. Yeah, I, you know, it's celebrity. Listen, the speaker circuit in AA is all about celebrity as much as about Hollywood is about yeah. celebrity. So it sounds like <laughs> this was kind of um, hijacked by the by the, the the more religious people and AA was subject to that because we were born from religion we were born from the Oxford we were. and these people are take, kind of pulling us back there and there's always been that kind of struggle and, 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 and Ernie Kurtz certainly describes it most effectively in which he describes the Akron style AA right. as being back to basics and right. the rest of AA as being much more open and inclusive and the thing about it is that People don't understand that both Bill and Bob went through a process of evolution. They changed. They evolved into the law. And what's not known is that even Dr. Bob, although he's certainly much more identified with the Oxford Christian way of sobriety, Dr. Bob wrote in one of the early AA pamphlets from Akron, in which he said that the Buddhist way of twelve uh, of the eightfold path of Buddhism could be substituted for the twelve steps, and he even went on to say it might even work better than the twelve yeah. steps. You know, that certainly you're not going to hear that anywhere today when you yeah. talk about Doctor Bob. <laughs> there are some things about Doctor Bob I like, um, oh, and absolutely. like he, um, the you know the the story about. Oh, the, tr- the tradition where um, there's no requirement for membership. You know, it was Dr. Bob. It was a gay person yeah. that was coming to That's the door. Right. And it was Dr. Bob who said, no, we're going to let this man in. What would the master do is what, what he said. Right. And they weren't going to let, let the gay person in. Right. Yeah. And then also, I don't think Dr. Bob, and if I remember right from Kurtz's book, he didn't really want a, the big book to be written, actually. He didn't want a book. He thought that was complicating yeah. it. Yeah, no. He, we almost might have been better off without a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and the poor guy is stuck in time with the quote that he says where he feels sorry for us atheists right. because that gets quoted at us quite a bit uh, from the. Right. 
yeah. all the time. And that's not really, I believe in my heart, that's not really what he believed. You know? No. Uh, and that like, well, Bill certainly evolved much more. And mm-hmm. he became much more inclusive and even has, there's some of what has been allowed to be published of his writings from the grapevine and from his correspondence that he wishes that he could rewrite certain sections of the big book. Yeah. And I've thought, Go ahead. this is something that only I know, and it's hearsay. But during the 80s, I was well acquainted with Nell Wing, the first archivist of AA, who was Bill's personal secretary, both in AA and Lois's secretary after Bill died. And she had in her apartment in Stuyvesant Town in lower Manhattan 35 boxes, legal-sized boxes of unpublished letters, correspondence, manuscripts, projects that Bill was working on. And she told me that during the last five years of her and Bill's life that they were working on a manuscript, a rewrite of the first 164 pages that would be more broadly and not so Christian Oxford group oriented way. She was a devotee of some of the uh, 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 Greek Stoic philosophers. Uh, I can't pronounce the one, yes. And uh, and, uh, uh, I have been searching for the last three years, both at Stepping Stones and at uh, AA Archives, and I can find no record of that at all. Mm-hmm. And my darker self, <laughs> my conspiratorial self, you know, says it's been carefully hidden and expunged, yeah. sequestered. But I and prove I, it the yeah. way. Yeah. Well, it makes sense in a way. I mean, um, after Bob and Bill passed on, I know that. Um, well, well um, Lois was still alive, and she was getting royalties from the big book. Yes, right? huge royalties. And Dr. Bob's children, I think, were getting royalties, weren't they? They got some, I believe, and also, of course, uh, 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 the uh, up until the uh, until AA let go of the uh, copyright to the first edition. That's, that's right. So was Helen Wynn, Bill's last mistress. That's, that's right. Just historical fact. And you yeah, know, yeah. it's so wonderful. But we're human beings, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, like feet. It's not something to be, oh, my God, Bill Wilton was a 13-stepper. <laughs> he wrote all yeah. 13 steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was. And, and I, I know, he's a, he's a human being, and that's yeah. that's what makes it great. And some of the people I respect the most in AA are the ones that are honest about their, their foibles, you know. Um, so, yeah. That's very interesting. I, I kind of side with you that I, I think that there would be reason for them to want to hide that. Well, I wrote one of the articles that I wrote for AA Agnostic. And by the way, John, just let me say that I am so pleased and happy that you have stepped up to uh, when Roger came to the point where he needed he needed to move on, you know, that you've stepped up to fill that vacuum, you know, uh, with, with AA Beyond Belief. But... Uh, now I, and now I've lost my train of thought. Uh, it was that. Uh, oh, what were we talking about? Uh, we were we were talking about um, that 
we that I, I agreed with you that I think that there was um, reason for them not to want that to come out to light. Right, right, and I think what the point. Yeah, it'll come back or it won't, and that's okay. Yeah, well, that's all right. Um, that's of course fascinating. So, um, how did you get involved with the agnostic AA movement? What's the story behind that? Well, uh, I uh, you know spent uh, most of my life in and around New York. Uh, I, uh, I I when my third marriage, yes, that's uh, that's 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 symptomatic <laughs> from Vietnam. Uh, difficulties with relationship. When my third marriage crashed and burned after 20, uh, 23 years, uh, 22 years together, I uh, took my half of the house and bought an RV, went on the road, and ended up in Tucson. And uh, about the time that we were invading Iraq, and I made a decision that I could not stay in, uh, in, in, two, in, in the country anymore, and I went to Sri Lanka. For two years, as a unarmed uh, civilian peacekeeper in an outfit called Nonviolent Peace Force, and uh, came back, ended up coming back to New York after the, the stint in Sri Lanka on Long Island, and just continued doing what I had been doing, you know, uh, during the uh, years of the uh, of the 21st century. Uh, in 2007, uh, in 2009, rather, after the uh, almost meltdown of the economics, I said, it's not a good thing to be on Long Island, which is dependent on daily deliveries of groceries <laughs> from the mainland, you know, mm-hmm. 7 million people or whatever. Uh, I'm going to move upstate to Woodstock and start, you know, becoming, farming my own vegetable garden, you know. Mm-hmm. Move to Woodstock. I never did a vegetable garden, but I met my, my third wife there. And uh, my fourth wife there, Jill, and uh, uh, we decided to move out to uh, to Aura. That I we had had enough time on the East Coast, and also there's this wonderful little HBO documentary on how to die in Aura. And I have always been an, uh, an advocate of me having control over when I die, not the docs or the lawyers. So we picked up bag and baggage and we moved to Oregon to a lovely, absolutely beautiful little coastal town in southern Oregon. And uh, we, I'll leave the, the, the area un, un, unnamed. And we lived there, but we experienced AA as a neo-Nazi, Christian-oriented, fascist cult. Wow. And, uh, it was... We just we had to pick up and move up the seaside where we live now, which is within an easy commute of Portland. Okay. And uh, about the time that we first became understanding how awful the program of AA, how alien it was to us in in where we were in Southern Oregon, I found AA Agnostica online and connected with Roger. And started writing articles for him, and I think I've written, oh, I don't know, some nine or ten articles in the last couple of years. And it got me involved in the secular AA movement that has emerged from the delisting of the two groups in, uh, in Toronto. You know, yeah. talk about that, the <laughs> law of unintended consequences. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, you know, I, I never much paid attention to Toronto, and now it's like <laughs> it totally changed my life. <laughs> 
it's the mecca of uh, of uh, of secular recovery. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually read the Toronto paper to keep up on what's going on up there. I know. <laughs> anyway, um, so so when did you start the the group out there um, in your area? It it, uh, it will be in fact this coming Sunday will be two years since Jill and I had the first little meeting uh, in uh, the Yolano Club of, uh, on, on uh, 24th Street, Northwest, in Portland. And when we came to uh, Portland, there was a, a We Agnostics meeting listed. We came over one Saturday afternoon. There was only one other person there, and it was a woman from Al-Anon who was looking for a meeting without God. You know? yeah. And so we started a meeting we had at our first meeting two years ago this Sunday uh, our, myself and uh, three or four others that Roger had connected us with through the service that he and Chris do and AA Agnostica and uh, we started from there and slowly it built up to where now we have two groups actually three groups in the Portland area we've got another group here that has a meeting in Seaside, and we have uh, uh, six, seven meetings a week, and more are expanding. And we have 30 to 50 strong members in our secular AA community. And what's so encouraging for me is that there are younger people that are coming in and they're staying who have never experienced, you know, Orthodox traditional AA. Or if they have that said, no way can I stay in AA. And yeah, getting, same here. <laughs> I know. They're getting involved in service, and it's wonderful. And we've just barely begun to see how we're going to ripple throughout the AA community. That's what's so promising. Um, yeah, we're seeing the same thing. People who intentionally come to our group because they wouldn't go to any other A group, never been to any other right. AA group. This is the only experience that they've had. And they come, and they are so grateful. It's been helping them. They're getting benefit from it. And it's, it's, it's just been great. So, yeah. So I think this is the future. I really feel that we are right now, without getting too grandiose, where yeah. AA uh, was in 1941, when yeah. the uh, Jack Alexander article exploded the AA membership across the country. It's just exciting. Yeah. Um, what's ironic, um, when I when I was first starting an agnostic group, I thought we might have some problems here in Kansas City, but actually we were totally accepted. And I thought that maybe people would perceive me as a little bit re rebellious. But you know what happened? They embraced me, and I've actually become more involved in AA than I've ever been before. Yes, yes, yes. I just finished a two-year stint as GSR for the Beyond Belief group in Portland that we started two years ago. At the first assembly I went to uh, in, in February two years ago, they ended with the Lord's Prayer. At this last assembly I went to last weekend, they ended with the Responsibility Declaration. And we were able at that assembly to pass on the motion that I, we had put in the previous assembly for the grapevine book of our stories. And I thought you know, before last weekend, maybe a 50-50 chance that it would gain the two-thirds majority required for substantial unanimity. It passed, John, with about 90% A's, maybe 
less than 10% voted against it. And from where I came from two years ago, after the experience in Southern Oregon, I thought it'll never get that amount of changing. And I remembered what I was saying before. One of the articles I wrote was that the tragic flaw in, in Bill's concept of service is the second tradition. How's that? AA's only authority is a loving God uh-huh. as he may reveal himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we know what that's going to be in the majoritarian Christian Oxford viewpoint. Yeah. 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 Um, talk a bit about the history behind the request for the Grapevine book. That history is so sordid. It's, it, it, it gives me a lot of effort to despair and to think that AA will never be able to change. And yet it's also a history of the perseverance that when an idea is right, that if dedicated people keep pressing for it, it will eventually come, no pun intended, to light. The first time it evolved was in 1976, when one of the members on the AA Literature uh, Board of Trustees Committee suggested that we need to have stories of atheists, agnostics, and freethinkers in AA to, uh, to have available to them. And between 1976 and 2012, or 2014, and 2014, that period of time, it had been voted down, voted down by the General Service Conference, in which two-thirds unanimity is required for passage of any issue that comes before it. It never achieved two-thirds unanimity until the very watered down, in our view, pamphlet, Many Paths of Spirituality, which, uh, quite frankly, is somewhat uh, uh, disrespectful. And, yeah, yeah. Was that pamphlet supposed to be like they're throwing us a bone there? Is that they're trying to satisfy us with that? That's what, that's what it is. And again, uh, you know, uh, uh, it came up again in 2012, the issue came up again, and AA collected, as I understand it, some 300 stories from atheists, agnostics, and, uh, and free thinkers. And when it came to the 2013 conference, it was kicked back again and said, no, this is not what we want. And what we got in 2014 was the many paths, which doesn't relate our stories it does have a couple of very salient quotes that put us on the map of AA, but it doesn't include our stories. It has snippets, sound bites, so to speak, of our stories to include that a Jewish person has no problem at all saying the Lord's Prayer. That's disrespectful. It is, because he'd be like one out of billions. He certainly wouldn't be in the you. And the atheists they quote in there, I don't really think they were really actually atheists who wrote those, those things. I don't. It's the best so, that can be done. Our issue yeah. is not going to go away. No. And essentially, AA will either change 
or it will become, you know, as quaint as uh, as uh, as horse-drawn carriages in uh, in, in Pennsylvania, you know, okay. Amish and Amish country. Then I remember because I saw I got copied on it, or, or Roger posted it. The letter that came from you and Roger and some people from Agnostica that went to the grapevine yes. requesting it, and it was rejected, but without any explanation. It was not rejected by the grapevine. Okay. Board of Trustees decided no, we will not put it on the agenda for this year. Gotcha. And I understand it because at last year's conference and all this past year major emphasis has been on increasing subscriptions to the grapevine and La Lavinia. Lavinia, yeah. And, you know, they didn't want to alienate their base. Right. I mean, it's it's a matter of politics. It's a matter of persuasion. It's a matter of the reality of they astutely realized this is not the time to bring this issue up, up for the grapevine to produce this book. And times are changing now pretty quickly, <laughs> because I think it probably will be an agenda item with the work that you did and area. What's the area fifty three in Ohio? They also passed in it. Ohio. Yeah. So we've got those two delegates that will go to the to the conference, I guess, and would vote for that. On the you know requested that it be put on the agenda. Now tell me this: the I, I don't I need to understand how this works. The what's You've got the General Service Board and you've got the General Service Conference. Do you understand what those... Well, you've got two sets of trustees. The Grapevine Board of Trustees, you've got the GSO, or the General Service Board Trustees, and they run the two corporations, AA World Services, which has its own board, uh, uh, and, and AA Grapevine, which has its board. And the General Conference is a combination of the staffs of the Grapevine and GSO and all of the delegates that come from the in North America uh, from the uh, uh, the number of areas that are in North America and Canada and the USA and the General Service Board decides what's going to be on the agenda at the conference it's it, it, it's decided predetermined sometime in, the deadline is September 15th and sometimes in January we'll find out what the agenda is Interesting. See, uh, here's um, what happened in Missouri on this on this deal. Because I, I was a little bit late getting to um, the assembly to vote on it, but I went to the last area assembly, and I went to my delegate and I told him what I, what I wanted to do. And at that time, I said I would like to have the entire assembly vote on this yeah. to have this recommended that you vote for it at the general service conference. He happens to be the chair of the Grapevine Committee for the general service conference. Yeah. And he told me that it would be better if our area didn't vote on it because that would allow him to participate in the discussion. Absolutely. So he said what he suggested is that I take it to the Grapevine Committee at the Area Assembly, ask them to recommend it. And I did that, and they voted for it unanimously to vote to ask him. So he said, okay. He's going to go and and make try to make it an agenda item on the general service conference. So is he on the general service board? Does he get to decide no, but that? But see, the, the way it works is that anyone can write to New York. As last year, Roger and and I, with Life and Chris and a couple of other people, we wrote to them requesting that this be put on the agenda for last year's conference. So anyone 
can write in. And okay. If you haven't seen it, I put up on WAF yesterday, uh, the WAF Central Coffee Shop, uh, requests and asking that anyone write in and request that this book be published. Because what Madeline P. discussed at the assembly last weekend is that one of the things that influences what's on the agenda is that when World Services, GSO, gets letters and requests for something from a broad range of people all throughout North America, that alerts them that, hey, this is something that is coming up from the uh, upside-down triangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cool to see. I, I, I really am beginning to have... I've never been involved in service work until now. I, I, I work professionally <laughs> in the field, and I thought the two had issue that I couldn't really work above the group level until now I'm not working in the field anymore. You know. And, you know, every single person that I've met that's been a delegate, I just had nothing but respect for. They're incredible. Yeah, and they really are genuinely being of service, and they're listening to the groups. Yes. So it's very heartening to see this, and and, I, and it gives me hope that things can change, yeah. because even the people like I, I'm from Missouri, and you know, it's, um, there's <laughs> it's kind of a red state, you know. <laughs> there's some people that feel differently than me about a lot of things, yeah. but you know, they're very accepting of me um, when we. When I was at the area assembly, and the last one, I think, or maybe the one before, I was acknowledging my, I mentioned that our group celebrated its first anniversary, yeah. and cheers and applause went up. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, it, it's heartening. But, and also, it's something I've noticed, and um, there seems to be a change with, something's going on with Grapevine, because, you know, in... October of 2016, they're going to have an issue entirely dedicated to yeah. agnostics and atheists. In AA. At the top of our inverted triangle, don't get it. And that would be the individual people in the groups, in the, the GSRs, out in the hinterland. The people at the bottom of the inverted triangle, the staff members at Grapevine, the staff members at GSO, people like Phyllis H., who spoke at the uh, uh, the Santa Monica Conference, Ward Ewing, who spoke at the Santa Monica Conference, they get it. They know that AA has got to change from this Christian point of view only and predominantly, or else it will die. Remember, and it's exactly what Bill warned against before he exactly died. Exactly what he warned against. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have ignored that advice. Yeah. Um, what do you see when you're, okay, when you go to area assembly, you know, and all the GSRs give their group reports, what is, how's your feeling of the general health of AA out there? Are groups saying that they're thriving and growing, or are they saying they're struggling? It's a little bit of both. Uh, I'm going to talk more about my experience of process. When I went to the Pacific Region uh, AA Service Conference, I was amazed at how open and inclusive the level of people working at the, uh, at the area and the delegate, the board of trustees, how inclusive they are. Uh, 
I mean, it, it just it just flew. So at Prasa, because we have something similar to that, because I guess we're in the southwestern region. Okay. So I don't even know what that is. So who goes to that? <laughs> Anyone involved in general service one. <coughs> uh, GSRs, uh, DCMs, uh, area committee members, uh, any mem AA members can go. And delegates? Delegates, yeah. So is it like, do, do they do anything that actually goes up through the through the general service conference, or is it like a convention type thing? It's, it's more like a convention type thing. Okay. And then you've got another branch that are the regional forums, which is something different, you know. And that doesn't, you know, roundups are involved in that too somewhere. Uh, it's, it's very complex and very complicated, but what what's coming to me is that there are two issues around which the AA as a whole are going to struggle with, in my view, for the next 10, 15, 20 to 25 years. It's the issue of singleness of purpose mm -hmm. and the issue of anonymity. Mm -hmm. That those are two issues that there's still a lot of gray areas of how some are very open about including other people than alcoholics in our meetings. Mm -hmm. You know, if they have a desire to stop drinking, that's all that's needed. <laughs> you know, and who can monitor or police? whether the desire is real or honest or not. No one. <laughs> you know? exactly. So if you're in a meeting and you say you have a desire to stop drinking, even if you talk about only drugs, you can't be kicked out. Right. But a lot of groups do. There are some hardcore purists that go crazy about that singleness of purpose thing. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, and I remember... Back when I was first in the program, back in the, I got in an 88, yeah. um, there were some old timers who were kind of grumpy and saying, oh no, you can't talk about drugs and so forth. But over the years, that kind of dissipated in most of the meetings I went to and people would regularly introduce themselves as alcoholics and drug addicts and it was not a big deal. But I know there are some Still groups. an underlying yeah. issue. And people who were so hardcore about that issue, no drug addicts, that just... Uh, indicates their ignorance of the big book because on page 22 of the big book they wrote about people who even use morphine <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah. absolutely so I can see how that could be a problem what about the anonymity thing the anonymity thing particularly with the interface of social media and uh, that though I certainly agree in principle with the spiritual uh, principle of anonymity and not non-ego being of selfless service that in the world particularly in the world of of the 20 teenagers and the 20-somethings there is no anonymity there isn't. they're just open about everything all <laughs> the time <laughs> yeah they are they certainly are and, it's uh yeah okay and on Tommy Rosen you know uh, recovery 2.0 and some of the other recovery sites I've heard some very convincing people discuss how for them not to talk publicly about their anonymity like the mayor in Boston you know like the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Robert Kennedy's son the former uh, 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 congressman from Massachusetts, he's yep. saying, I'm being dishonest. 
I can't be my authentic self if I deny the reality, the truth of who and what I am and why and I am who I am today in recovery. I saw that um, documentary, The Anonymous People, I think it was called, and he, that made a very, very good point because um, the anonymity does kind of stigmatize this thing still. Yes. Stigmatizes alcoholism and drug addiction. It still comes from a place of fear instead of a place of acceptance. And for a person, nobody wants to hold something back about themselves. That's right. I mean, whether you're an atheist and you're holding that back from your family, whether you're gay and you're holding that back from somebody, or whether you're an alcoholic and you're not letting somebody know, it's it conflicts. People feel conflicted you are about in that. In a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't position. But you can still practice the principle of doing good work for yeah. people without having without, to do an app. Yeah. 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 That makes sense to me. I can see that. I agree with that. And especially with the social media thing. I, I remember there was a, a vote at our area assembly um, to put a Facebook page up for our um, state convention yeah. so that people could learn about the state convention on Facebook. Yeah. And they voted it down because they were worried that um, people were going to compromise their anonymity by liking the page or yeah. whatever. And I thought to myself, oh, you should loosen up a little bit on that. It's not that big of a deal on Facebook. Everybody does it anyway. <laughs> so. Well, the reality is that in truth, no one is anonymous today. No, you can't be. There's actually no privacy anymore. Even get into the political issue of NSA. <laughs> right. You know. It's, yeah. Uh, well, that's 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 really interesting. Um, well, I think this was a pretty good conversation. Um, so, what do you think? What uh, just really quickly? What do you think about the future for AA? You, you, are you optimistic about it at this optimistic. point? I'm optimistic yeah. for at least as long as I continue being on the planet. <laughs> you know, yeah, that AA will continue in some way, and that it will change and morph eventually, or it will continued the decline that it has. Josie has uh, certainly uh, documented that a lot. Now, <laughs> since 93, membership has been steadily in, on a downward trend. And I'm optimistic, too. And I think that it's well worth worth saving, too. It's a good fellowship. I like it. So, Well, it's, yeah. we'll continue working together in concert to, uh, to make sure it stays around. Okay. Well, thank you, Thomas. I really enjoyed the conversation. And that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you.